0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the second of four sessions in our Advent series. Remember that Advent means coming or arrival. And during this time, we take pause and celebrate the first coming of Jesus, while at the same time eagerly awaiting his second coming, his second advent, when he comes again in glory. The reason we are here is to be in celebration and anticipation of Jesus, our Savior and King. So my hope for you today is have peace, as we lit the peace candle this morning, that we could slow down and prepare room in our hearts. Last week, as we read Isaiah 9 6, we discussed the title Wonderful Counselor. This week, we're going to discuss the title Mighty God. Just let that sink in for a minute. Mighty God. Today, as we read again in Isaiah 9 6, this awe inspiring verse, just look at the first part for a second. For unto us a child is born unto us a son is given this speaks both to his human nature a child and his divine nature the son given there was a time when humanity was not part of his deity the son had to be given because the second person of the trinity jesus christ is eternal and existed and became god in human flesh one person with two distinct natures functioning together in perfect harmony meditate on that for a little while today we are specifically looking at the son given we are looking at this from the divine side the mighty god as our promised savior the messiah jesus christ what do you think about when asked what is the character of god or what is his attributes this is this is the audience participate Participation time. So what are his attributes? Shout them out. Holy, I heard. What? Faithful, yes. (laughs) I'm thankful for this faithfulness. Anything else? All-powerful. Everlasting. All-knowing. Okay, you got it. Loving. Everywhere. Eternal. So these are just a few of his attributes. He's an eternal God. He's, but listen to these again. God is incomprehensible, incomparable, invisible, inscrutable, unchangeable, unequaled, unsearchable, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, all powerful, omnipresent, ever present, um, omniscient, all knowing, has foreknowledge, and is wise. Morally, God is good and God is holy. If we were to read the mighty God in Hebrew, it would be read El Gibor. about that? Meaning God, mighty. I think both parts of this title need to be understood a little bit. So Trevor has his nerd rants. This is, this is the way I do nerd rant. So if you bring this up, yet yeah, mighty God, El Gibor. And you see it in the Hebrew. Remember we read, go back one, one just a little bit. Uh, remember we read this right to left, El, Gibor. Now you can go on to the next one. The first part of the title is El, the singular form of the word Elohim. In the Old Testament, this refers to the one true God. The two Hebrew letters that make up El are the Aleph on the right and the Lamed. Aleph, as you can see, is represented by the, the ox, The strong leader, the first letter that represents God the Father. It's the first letter in the alphabet. Lamed, represented by the shepherd's staff, means who guides and directs. The only Hebrew letter that is literally above or higher compared to all the other letters. It represents Jesus as the the voice of authority and signifies a blood sacrifice. So the Aleph and the Lamed, and if you go to the next one, Ruth, you'll see, can you pick out the Lamed? It's the one that's high and lifted up. Can you point it out? It's important to know. It's important as we read this. And as we go on to the the next section, when you put these two letters together, next slide, it has a deeper meaning because there's actually more letters involved. But I'm not going to go through them all. But as you can read this from right to left, you would read the strong leader who guides and directs by his perfect words to the door that leads to the living water that springs up into eternal life. That's just the first word. That's what El means. Then we go on to mighty, El Gabor. The other part of the name is Gabor, which means strength, power, hero, strong and mighty one. What a statement in a world where heroes are often determined by athleticism, personal talent, financial power. If you think about athleticism, you might have an opinion on who the greatest athlete is of all time. Mine's Bo Jackson. Bo knows. Look him up. (laughs) Personal talent, someone who is excellent at public speaking or has a talent for singing. John, for instance. Financial power, someone who is self-employed, a big executive, no worries about money at all. But we are told the only one true that is truly worthy to be called hero is the one who is might, his might is unparalleled. The focus of Isaiah's prophecy here is El Gabor, the mighty God who is our true hero, our true redeemer. What the prophet Isaiah is predicting in the 7th century before Christ is then confirmed in the New Testament because the Messiah would be God. He would have God's power. But Isaiah's amazing thing the thing was that the Messiah would not only have the power of God, but he would be the God of power. Isaiah 9-6 was predicting one who would be far more than a man. It's, in, it's indicated by the next title that we're going to study next week, Everlasting Father, and by the New Testament record of Christ. The one where Christ said, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a powerful statement. The one of whom John wrote... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so as we look further into this son that was given, we look at what his name will be called. The idea isn't that this is the literal name of Messiah. Instead, these are the aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he has come to do. A name does not just identify or distinguish a person, it expresses the very nature of his being. So to explore our mighty God deeper and more fully, I want to look at three our four aspects um, of what his name encompasses. First, the deity of Jesus, then our creator God, his sovereignty, and Jesus as our warrior. So first, the deity. What does deity mean? It it means his divine nature. I'm from the old Lutheran school of the Nicene Creed. These might be familiar to to you of who the deity of Christ is. He is very God of very God. He is begotten, not made. He is one substance with the Father. By him all things were created, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He is God in human flesh. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Because there's a huge consequence if you, if you don't. If he's not, I mean, think about it. If he is not God, if Jesus is not divine, then we are the worst of our idolaters. The reason the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus is because he claimed to be God. What did he say? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the true vine. He claimed to be God. So if Jesus is not God, then the Sanhedrin were right to crucify Jesus. And they were right that we are, we are, if we follow Christ, we are just idolaters, merely worshiping a man who is a liar and a lunatic. But, and what does God say about idolaters? He says in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And if Christ is not God, if he did not rise as proof... Then Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men the most pitiable. But we know different. We know a lot different. In Hebrews 11.1 1 it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is built on evidence that Jesus is who he says he is that he is our mighty God. And so what is this evidence of a mighty God? By his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and most importantly, his resurrection. He showed that we could trust him, though most of his own people rejected him. John wrote, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet in many cases, he was recognized, as the long-awaited Messiah. Think about Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in secret, and at night he recognized who he was. The disciples recognized Jesus, although they were a little bit confused and always arguing. They recognized who Jesus was. They claimed who he was. Mary Magdalene recognized him, and her life was totally transformed. Others' lives were changed as well, including the church's most notorious persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, completely changed. These and thousands of others, first century Christians, believed, and for good reason, Jesus proved himself to be El Gibor as he displayed his life-changing might and power. And still today, for those who see a need for a savior, the evidence of Christ's mighty power is overwhelming. The mighty God During his earthly life, Jesus showed his right to be recognized as the mighty God by demonstrating power over nature. When he called his first disciples, think about what happened. He called them and all these fish showed up in their boats, overwhelming their boats. Um, He had power. So he had power over nature. Remember the woman who just grabbed the hem of his his cloak was healed of a blood issue. That's power. The demon-possessed man was healed. Remember, Jesus forgives sins. Who could forgive sins? But a paralytic man was let down through a hole in the roof to not only have his sins forgiven, but be healed physically as well. Jesus had power over death. Remember the little girl that they said was dead. She brought her back to life. And then Lazarus, his best friend, after four days dead, brought him back to life, the power over, over death. And Lazarus, can you imagine being Lazarus being brought back to life? Now he's marked. <laughs> the Sanhedrin didn't like him either. But throughout the course of Christ's life, he revealed his divine might in ways that only could, were, were undeniable. And they were intentional validations of who he was, the mighty God, in Acts 2. 2:22 it says men of Israel this is peter speaking to these 3000 people hear these words jesus of nazareth a man attested by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did through him in your midst as you yourselves know they knew it was undeniable it was in front of them they didn't have any excuse And finally, at the end of John, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. But most of all and above all else, Jesus proved his divinity through his resurrection. That's power over death. Christ's resurrection was witnessed by Mary by the apostles, and by over 500 others, eyewitnesses. And when we see the otherwise inexplicable demonstrations of God's might in the life of Christ, it becomes clear why Paul could call Jesus the Son of God with power. In Romans 1.4 he says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, And in 1 Corinthians, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The New Testament provides us an opportunity to see the fullness of the mighty God. Showing how his power was displayed in his life on earth and how it was confirmed and witnessed through his resurrection. But also how it was seen before even he came to earth. Which leads us to the second characteristic of Jesus, the almighty God. Jesus, our creator God. Jesus, the mighty God, before his birth. Go back a little bit. The Bible clearly states that Christ displayed his might by creating the world before he physically entered it. In John one three, it says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians one sixteen agrees, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Christ's display of might in the act of creation distinguished him from mere humans. We have the ability to make things, but we require some basic raw materials. Christ showed his might and ability to create to make something out of nothing. The Hebrew word is bara. Just saying that word, think about how it feels coming out, the breath, the spoken word of Jesus, Barah. Genesis, the book of beginnings, starts with the most significant words of all time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or Barashit, bara Elohim. Just saying those, it feels powerful. (laughs) these first three words are so incredible that it requires a whole series of sermons dedicated to it, so we're not doing it. But for our purposes today, know that when you study the Hebrew, if you like to, like we did with El Gabor, it shows that Jesus was in the beginning, speaking the world into existence together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. For me, when I hear these words, I just go back, and I, I visualize what was going on. And maybe it's just me, but I can see, I can picture God the Father with his, with his hands over his son's shoulder, like a good father would. A good father always has his son, hands on, the, on his shoulder of his son. And with the Holy Spirit hovering in, on the waters in the background, Jesus is speaking, Barah! Jesus is speaking the world into existence, and the Father is leaning over his son's shoulder saying, "This is good. This is very good. I just love visualizing that. It takes the divine to truly create. And Christ demonstrated that power in the most profound way, way by creating the universe out of nothing. With these words, the story of God's grand and glorious plan for humanity begins. The opening book of the Bible is about God's created design for his world. Humankind's fall into sin and rebellion and God's gracious plan to rescue his his people from the terrible implications of what sin brings. Jesus has been from the beginning. We live in a society where many, many people believe in some type of God, Therefore, it's possible that you could say that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. However, even among Christians, understanding that Jesus created everything changes how we look at the scripture as a whole. Looking a little deeper at what Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, we read, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or all things are held together by him. Paul writes, all things were created by, through, and through, and for Jesus, Again, John makes a similar claim at the beginning of his gospel. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greeks believed that there was a unifying force that held things together. That was called, they called it the Logos, and they were right, but they just didn't know who Jesus was. They they defined the force as the Logos, but the Logos is translated into word. And the Gospel of John defines Logos as Jesus. In John 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word of God, the very agent God used to create all things, took on flesh and made his dwelling on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. John both. Paul both proclaimed that this is the agent of creation, the eternal word of God who is used by God to make something out of nothing. Understanding that Jesus created everything and holds everything together should shape, again, how we read Scripture. It should shape how we understand our mighty God. And some may think that Jesus makes his first appearance in the book of Matthew. Not true. Instead, you will find Jesus in every book of the Bible. And it starts right here in the book of Genesis. Jesus, our glorious creator. And then if we go further, Exodus, Jesus, our miracle deliverer. Leviticus, Jesus, our sacrificial substitute. Numbers, Jesus, our gracious provision. And in Deuteronomy, Jesus, our promised hope. And I could go through all 66 books and you'd find Jesus in every single book of the Bible. That's the point. God's nature, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are clearly on display from the very beginning of Scripture and to the very end. But Jesus didn't create everything and then just watch from the outside, as some believe. He also holds all things together. Because who Jesus is, we can take comfort in the promise that he holds all things together, even in this broken world, even in our broken lives. From the beginning of time, Jesus has been at work in our world and in our lives. Even when we feel like it's falling apart, Jesus holds everything together. Nothing can keep him from accomplishing his plans or his will. We read these same verses earlier, but listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians again, starting at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, In him, all things consist. Or in other words, all things are held together. This tells me that Jesus didn't create everything and then just watch from the outside. It tells me that he is a creator that is intimate. He's a hands-on God. He is sustaining all things even now. Hebrews says it this way. The first part of verse 3 in chapter 1. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This statement is saying right now that Jesus is the one who is keeping things going. This is something I think we Christians tend to forget too often. All power has been given to Jesus in heaven and earth. We can get so used to seeing things through the secular eyes of the media that we forget that behind all the events and all these things that fill our airways is a mighty, controlling hand that brings them all together, permitting some things to happen and restraining other things. History has recorded the things that have been allowed. But I wonder about the things Jesus has restrained or things that he has kept from happening. The events that capture our attention today at some point will fade away. They'll seem trivial soon, I hope. Yet they do have some meaning, as the Bible tells us, that his mighty hand is shaping the things of the future. There's a story to come. We know the end of the story. All these things have been written and will always remain in the power of him who sustains the universe by the power of his word. And that brings us to his sovereignty. A third characteristic of Jesus Sovereignty tells us that God's divine control over everything that happens. Sovereignty is complete, supreme, or ultimate authority and power. There's nothing outside the control of his loving word or his loving hand. You might wonder if God is in control sometimes, but, he, but we know he always allows the free will of man as well. We see the way the earth works and the hurricanes and the earthquakes we see the designs of those who want to do evil. Listen to what Ephesians 6, 12 says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against power, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And my own free will gets in the way. I'm a sinful man. I get in my own way. But Romans tells us this in Romans twenty eight twenty eight. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And a little bit further down in verses 38 and 39, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This implies that there is nothing beyond the control of God's sovereign hand. There is stuff that happens, but God is always in complete control. God's sovereignty is a huge source of comfort to the believer. It helps him know that no matter how chaotic any situation may seem, he really need not fear, for God is in charge and on the throne. And combined with his love, He cannot be defeated. We just talked about creation. The sovereignty of God is the fact that he is the Lord over all creation. As sovereign, he exercises his rule. There are many examples, but I like the example of God showing his sovereign rule over Pharaoh. You might remember. Um, I'll talk about it in a minute, but even God's name, Yahweh, expresses his sovereign rule over the claims of human kings. But at the same time his sovereign control is not impersonal or mechanical it's loving it's gracious he's the king of creation and redemption Jesus is in control his control means that everything happens according to his plan and intention he's the sovereign ruler because God's authority and control we cannot escape from his justice or his love either God is absolutely in control the Bible teaches us that God is control of all things. He has eternal plan for all nature and history. When God meets with Moses in Exodus 3, he reveals his name as Yahweh, that, that name, Lord, God, the existing one, the proper name of the one true God, the name that observant Jews will not utter or pronounce or read aloud. He's revealing God's lordship to Moses that God, not Pharaoh, rules over the affairs of Egypt. But I am, it says in in Exodus 3, but I am sure, listen to what God is saying, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Nope, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my mighty wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And then in Exodus 6, it says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Note those last four words. I am the Lord This is a promise. God is Lord. He's sovereign. He will certainly deliver Israel from Egypt and bring his people into the promised land. Nothing can stop the Lord from fulfilling his promise. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his purpose. And we can turn from Pharaoh and look at our own nation. God has been a part of our nation as well. And in this book, it's called The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. Michael Medved details many situations throughout our nation's history where God's providential hand was upon our nation and upon our national leaders, one of which details a situation in young George Washington's life. Maybe you've heard this. Back in 1755, a long time ago, before our nation was even here, George Washington served as an officer for the British Army in the French and Indian War. During a particular battle, Washington and his men were completely outnumbered and outmaneuvered by the French and Indian warriors. Within two hours, 1,000 British soldiers soldiers were killed or wounded while only 30 French and Indian warriors were injured. The Indian warriors fought from the cover of trees, whereas the British soldiers, soldiers formed perfect battle lines, shoulder to shoulder, marching out in plain sight. One by one, The British officers who were on horseback were targeted and shot down until only Washington remained. The Indian chief said, quick, let your aim be certain and he dies. But round after round was aimed at this man. Two horses shot out from underneath him and still the officer was standing unharmed. Thirteen rounds in all were fired by excellent sharpshooters, but to no avail. Finally, the Indian chief shouted, "'Stop firing!' He recognized there was a power at force stronger than their weapons. Years later, an Indian warrior recounted, "'I had 17 clear shots at him, "'and after all could not bring him to the ground. "'This man was not born to be killed by a bullet.'" After the battle, Washington assessed his own situation. Upon taking off his coat, he found four bullet holes had passed through his jacket but left no marks on his skin. They literally stopped before touching his body. Nine days later, in a letter to his brother to confirm that he was still alive, he wrote, As I have heard since my arrival at this place a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and assuring you that I have not as yet composed by latter. I mean, I'm not dead but by the all-powerful dispensations of providence I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Then, 15 years later, in 1770, Washington had an opportunity to sit face-to-face with the respected Indian chief whom he fought against in the battle, This is what the chief said, and I'm not going to try to mimic his voice. I am a chief and ruler over all my tribes. My influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with streams of our forests that I first beheld this chief, Washington, I called to my young men and said, Mark yon tall and daring warrior. He is not of the Red Coat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom and his warriors fight as we do, himself alone exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain and he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for you, knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain. A power mightier and far than we shielded you. Seeing you were under the special guardianship of the great spirit, we immediately cease to fire at you. I am old and shall soon be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the lands of the shades. But ere I go, there is something bids me speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen. The great spirit protects that man pointing at Washington and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations, and a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle." So as you know, this 23-year-old officer went on to become commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and the first president of the United States. In all that time, George Washington was never injured in battle. Our Lord had other plans for George and other plans for this nation. But today I would say to you, our nation is at a crossroads. There's division, there's strife, there's anger, there's slander, there's mistrust. Constantly ruling our headlines. The temperature seems to be so high that the thermometer is going to burst. This is where the doctrine of sovereignty can give us some peace. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of the water, he turns it wherever he wishes. This passage is about God's sovereignty. The king or emperor or prime minister or the president is in command, but it's God who has the ultimate authority. It's God who turns the king's heart wherever he wishes, wherever he chooses. I say this to you so you can have peace. Where God's sovereignty is most made known is through his son, Jesus Christ. How is this so? Jesus has dominion over all things because he paid the penalty of sin and rose to life in victorious power. When Jesus ascended to heaven at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he told his followers, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. So you may be thinking, when looking at our world and our country, okay, God, since you have all authority, what are you doing here? That's when we have to remind ourselves that we, as humans, have this only very small line of sight. And we have to remind ourselves that God, his perspective is eternal. He's outside of space and time. And remember that He's, we serve a loving, patient, and merciful God. So so keep your eyes on the things above, knowing that God works all things together for, for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Remember that in the face of our enemies, our Lord will prevail. Which brings us to the fourth and final characteristic of our God, our mighty God, Jesus, our warrior. Mighty to save. What do you think when you hear warrior? Maybe you think of a military soldier. Or a person that shows great courage. He's a fighter. Maybe you think of David's mighty men. These guys were heroes and champions. In Psalm 45 3, it speaks to him as king. It says, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. This is speaking of Jesus, our Messiah. When I think of a mighty th- warrior, I think of someone who has victory upon victory he's a conqueror so now jesus is the mighty god he's the divine warrior who conquers every foe including our enemies sin death and the devil who has the ultimate power over death god or the devil the bible says jesus has authority over death if we go to revelation now revelation 118 says I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what a warrior does. And in Hebrews 2:14 and 15, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage this is good news christ has conquered death we won't we don't need to fear death has no authority over those who have believed in jesus when sin entered into our world death came with it the author of sin and death is the devil The coming of Christ destroyed the works of the devil in the sense that death no longer has the fear that it once had. Those who believe in Christ belong to him forever. And nothing, even death, can keep the believers apart from him. Therefore, the ultimate power of death belongs to Jesus, the one who conquered death and the grave. Our mighty God will soon return, soon and very soon, as a victorious warrior. Listen how he's described in in chapter 19 of Revelation. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. this next story I have is, is, I don't know if it's true, but it's from Robert Louis Stevenson. And if you don't know Robert Louis Stevenson, he's best known for Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But he writes It was night, and the waves brought the boat dangerously close to a rocky shore. The wind threatened to drive the boat into destruction onto the rocks. The passengers were confined below decks while the crew struggled to keep the boat afloat and away from danger. They were terrified not knowing what was happening or if the next few moments would be their last. Finally, one passenger decided to defy the orders of the captain and see what was going on. He climbed up the deck and made his way to the pilot house. The deck of the ship was slick and rolling. If he didn't slip and crack his skull, then he was in danger of the wind blowing him overboard. Slowly, grabbing onto whatever handholds he could find, he made it to the pilot house and looked in. He saw the steersman holding onto the ship's wheel unwaveringly. Inch by inch, the steersman was turning the boat away from the rocks and out into the open sea. The pilot looked over and saw the drenched passenger and smiled. (laughs) The passenger made his way back, inch by inch, back along the treacherous deck swept by winds and waves. He climbed down the stairs to the room where the others were huddled together out of fear and gave a note of good cheer. All is well. We are going to be all right. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. Maybe you are facing some storms right now. Maybe you feel like you're facing some insurmountable mountain of difficulty, some impossible situation. It could be at at home, you having someone near to you that has cancer, or maybe it could be even at work, you know, with the economy, the way it's going, there's rumors of layoffs coming. What do you do? These are stressful stressful situations. And what do you do? But God allows us to experience these. We think, we think these things are too difficult. It's at these times we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The word fix here literally means to turn your eyes away from the things that are nearby. Stop focusing on things that are right in front of your face. Think about who you're supposed to be fixed on. You're not supposed to be fixed on these things that are nearby, but fixed on the one who is Jesus. Not on something, but on someone. And one of the best ways to fix our eyes on Jesus is by meditating on his truth. Focus on what Jeremiah 6.10 says. Listen to this. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Again, what do we do when we are crippled by fear or something's causing difficult circumstances in our life? We need to look away from the stormy waves and into the beautiful face of our Savior Jesus, our mighty God, the one who is always mighty to save. We need to see his reassuring smile. Who alone is able to calm the storm simply by speaking these words to your heart? Peace. Be still. But that is not the way it always works, my friend. Um, While our mighty God may calm the storm around us, most often he doesn't calm the storm Around us, what does this mean? It means the storm is still raging. However, He has taken us through the storm. We are not alone. He is with us. Cory Ten Boom said, "Look at the world, you'll be distressed. Look at yourself or within, you'll be depressed. Look at Christ, you'll be at rest." How difficult is your difficulty? The name Mighty God begs the question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? How would God answer that question? He would say, are my arms too short? I can't reach you? Is anything too difficult for me? Nothing is impossible. When the children of Israel were trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, to Moses he said, be still and know that I am God. To Abraham he said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah Sarah shall have a son. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples seeing how hard it was for a rich man to get into heaven the disciples said, "Well, (laughs) Well then how can anybody be saved? And Jesus answered, With men this is impossible but with God all things are possible. All things are possible with a mighty God. God is the only one that can save. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't do anything to be saved. You can do nothing. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. And all means all. There's nothing left to do. It has been accomplished. And I love how the angel Gabriel announces the Christ child's birth to Mary, she was completely overwhelmed and at first troubled. What if these words were the words you heard? Think of yourself as a 16-year-old little girl. You, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to you. And an angel, first of all, think of an angel coming to you and saying, you have found favor with God. Okay, well, that's a good start. Having an angel coming to you and say, you have favor with God, that's a good thing. But then listen to what Mary heard. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be called the Son of God. And then Mary said, My son is going to do what? What? He's going to be called the Holy Son of God. And what did the angel said. The angel said, For with God, nothing will be impossible. There's a beautiful promise in Zephaniah that I think is a, applies to us as well. In Zephaniah 3.17 it says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That our God is in our midst, that alone should give us peace and hope and calm our fears. But understand what God takes joy in. When he created, he said, it was good. But what does he sing about? What gives him joy? You. He is our mighty warrior. He loves to save salvation is in his name that is what he's all about who is this king of glory psalm 24 8 says the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle and i want to close with this we think of the lord and his and his outstretched hands the lord mighty we look at our mighty god remembering once again That he is incomparable, invisible, inscrutable, unchangeable, unequaled, unsearchable, infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, has foreknowledge and is wise morally. God is good and he is holy and God is love. But I think, God, what, what have you done? What child is this? You've heard it said, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, you think of God's mighty power and how he has defeated his enemies. But now when I read it again, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son given, I just think to myself, I wasn't expecting this. What a powerful, almighty God would take the punishment that I deserve, death. He would stretch out his hands willingly, the hands that hold the universe together and be crushed for me. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given the name above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only a God that loves me more than I could ever imagine would do this. This is the gospel, that Christ died for us, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and we have witnesses to these facts. When you think of God with his mighty hand, outstretched arm, you think of his mighty strength, parting the Red Sea, sending plagues on Egypt, fighting the children of in, uh, fighting for the children of, of Israel in the Promised Land. Nothing can withstand his power. But also what we see with his outstretched hands, his arms, is the picture of Jesus on the cross taking the punishment that we deserve, conquering both sin and death. This is our conqueror. This is our warrior. This is our mighty God. We have looked at Jesus in Genesis as our creator, our creator God, and throughout the Bible as our divine, sovereign, and warrior God, and now we look at Jesus in Revelation. What does the Bible say about how we see Jesus? Revelation 5, 6 says, And I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. But this lamb that had been slain, we worship. And further down in Revelation 5, it says, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So, what child is this? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he is our mighty God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, I just, looking at your words today and the words of Isaiah, how you came into this world, we looked at you from Genesis to Revelation as our creator, the divine, our sovereign, our warrior God, but a God that cared for us so much that he would take his glory off and come down as a child, humbled himself because you you loved us so much, Lord. Our mighty God who loved us, you didn't have to, but you loved us. You stretched out your arms and you died for us to bring us to yourself. I pray, Lord, that as we look at you today, my hope is that that we can have peace in knowing that you are in full control, that you are our mighty God. As we worship you, as the child, as a son that was given, we see who you are. We're a little bit closer to you today. We're a little bit more intimate. You, you've known us intimately from the morning, from the time we were knit together in our mother's womb. You have knew us intimately. But Lord, we need to come to you. We need to be intimate with you. So I pray that we wouldn't be distracted by the season, but we'd be attracted to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.